0: Corroded, and their corrosion will be evident against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person.
1: He does not resist you.
0: Serious words to all of our hearts about coming judgment and how God looks upon this planet and upon our lives. The song is called Lord Have Mercy. And there's a chorus. It's very easy. Um, I know you don't want to sing it out loud, but maybe prayerfully just sing it in your minds or softly in your hearts.
2: The words that you have spoken, promise that has burned within my heart, have now wounded. With the doubting heart I follow the paths of earthly wisdom. Forgive me for my unbelief. renew the fire again. far from you. Now I am returning to your mercies ever flowing. Pardon my transgressions. Help me love you again. Lord, I bow my heart before you in the
0: goodness of your presence, your grace
2: forever shining like a beacon in the night.
0: Lord have mercy we all know that our God is a very blessed God right he it says in Zephaniah he sings over us those who are Jesus he is joyful he is not up in heaven or in heaven uh drudging around in this angry grouchy mood but we tell from the scriptures that there is another or a full emotional side of God and an aspect of him. And I think people know that it's there, even people who don't know him. You know, sometimes if a friend of mine is talking and saying something a little bit like, hey man, you're going too far. I often say to him, let me stand away before lightning strikes so I don't get in the way. (laughs) Right? You know, this idea that God does want to judge. And it's, it's funny when you think of it, but I remember even growing up as a kid, my mother would say, you know, when it's thunder and lightning, you know, God must be angry. We didn't get the bowling kind of thing, all right? You know, God must be angry. Uh, but even in animist cultures, third world, notice that there's always appeasing the gods or even appeasing the demons. This idea that's universal uh, and, you know, you can end up feeling that God is this cosmic killjoy, right? Ready to get you if you don't watch out and make amends. Don't watch out and make amends. It's funny that this whole emotional idea of God being angry, in America, we reject or for, by and large reject. People in the West want to avoid this idea because they feel it's like unsophisticated. You know, how could you think of God that way? God, if there is one, is a God of love. That's what is thought. And I think this whole idea, though, is, is really not thought through. It's misinformed. Right? God can be angry, and it's reasonable. I mean, think about it. You can't have real love without anger. If somebody abuses my daughter, I, am, I love her. I'll do anything for her, but I will be angry at the sin done against her. And again, it's not like God's anger is this Greek God in mythology, which kind of make it human and arbitrary and even kind of in competition with humans. It's weird. His anger is not due to crankiness. God's anger isn't explosive like an impatient father. His anger isn't out of control or due to grouchiness or jealousy. His anger isn't even driven by pride. This is what motivates the emotion of anger in our God. His anger, and this is what Ken Keller says. It's a beautiful illustri- uh, description. He says his anger isn't even, I'm sorry. His anger is a permanent, unrelenting, binding, perfectly honest, and pure emotion. That is driven by something very specific. Our sin. And how it plays out in ruining his good creation. There are many metaphors given in the Bible. Our brother this morning was talking about being in the middle of a desert and being hopeless, right? There are so many in the scripture that talk about our condition. The sin is sometimes called sickness. We need healing. We are enslaved. We need redeeming. We are lawbreakers. We what? We need forgiveness and it goes on and on the corruption that affects us personally, relationally, the environment and also politically, even economically, the things and policies that governments do. In God's universe, every evil will be settled. Someday, someone has to pay. I think of it very simply uh, from a friend of mine who's uh, um, at our house uh, in our dining room. We sat on the uh, chair. He's. Bigger than me, when he sat back and tried to move away from the table, the leg cracked. You know, and he wanted to pay for the, the, the chair. I said, no, nah, you know, don't, don't worry about it. Just lose some weight, but, uh, you're, you're, uh, but you're good. You're good. All right. And so sorry, I didn't say that. But uh, any, I was thinking it. Anyway, uh, but the, the point, point is, is that. OK, I, I kind of have pardoned him because he's my friend. But somebody has to pay for the chair. Right? Somebody, if we're going to repair it or get a new one, somebody has got to pay for it. Now, that's, that's a cosmic principle. Justice is a cosmic principle. And so this idea of judgment has to do with justice. The human race, we are under this judgment of breaking the shalom of God. And this judgment is deserved. That's what James is getting at here when he says, your riches have rotten and your garments are moth eaten Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evident against you. You can't trust these things. The psalm that was read this morning, it's amazing how God is leading today, right? The psalm that was read this morning about how people will not be able to endure their riches. They will be gone. It says they will die just like beasts. A vapor, last week we talked. Let's see how this works with the simple idea of favoritism. I'm staying within James now and and letting James kind of define the categories as we discuss this. Because if you turn back to chapter 2 in James, he talks to brothers, but he talks about these kind of simple sins that we don't think deserve judgment, right? I'll give you an example of when Paul is talking about sin and the judgment that's deserved. He says uh, of people who have put their own lusts at the top and and exchanged the glory of God for what they want to do. And he says this little phrase, and they they were not thankful. Thankful? What's the big deal? I'm not thankful most of the time. But Paul is getting at something underneath things. An awareness that there is a God. An awareness that he is a giver, right? James says there was out shadow, okay? He is a bright, shining giver of gifts. He loves people. He loves his world. He wants them to see him. They're not thankful. That gets underneath an attitude of unbelief. An attitude that speaks to this idea that I can do it alone. That my way is better. And so James talks about partiality. And he says this, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. You have not then made, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You see, James has this theme, as we said last week, one of the themes in his book, and this book is a heavy-duty book, is about how we treat riches. Old King James Version, mammon this whole idea where riches become something in a believer's life and certainly in unbeliever's life where they rest in. Okay. It's everything to them. And if you have enough of it, if greed kicks in, you want more, but even if greed doesn't kick in, it's something where you can say, I'm good. I can take care of all the problems. Everything's going to be fine. I can even pay for my health care. Rich. And there's something that gets injected. The simple thing of favoritism. James here is getting at something very basic. He says it. uh, I want to find the verse. Yeah. Verse six. But you have dishonored the poor man. I've seen a picture of what they think might be the situation here, where if people came into these assembled, uh, these rooms where they were meeting, there were always uh, for either a slave uh, or someone who was you know, down the pecking order. Because in that culture, there, there was a great amount of, let's say, uh, you know one person paid up to that person, who paid up to that person, who paid up to that person okay so there was all this idea where there were I don't want to call it caste system but similar to that where you know they knew if you were a slave you were down here if you were a child you were down here if you were a woman you were up here but down here because if you were a man and then depending on your background if you were an artisan or something else you just came up the pecking order that was the idea at least in roman and and in in this kind of culture. Here, James is talking to people in Jerusalem. And so they think that, and this is one based on one picture, but when you came in to sit, there would have been something, a small chair, where a slave or someone lesser than would sit there at at their feet. That's what James is getting at. You know, you wonder about that. But we're kind of like different. We don't have that. Hierarchy, we just have people sit in the back if, if you know we're, we're not sure about them, and, and I'm not sure if it really applies exactly to our situation. But he's talking about this idea of favoritism where a poor man comes in and they don't get the same treatment as a rich man. And Paul is uh, James is saying they're equal in Christ, they're equal. In Christ. You don't put him there and him there. They're equal. They get the same. Now, that for some people was kind of a revolutionary thought. But when D- James says this whole thing about that he dishonored the poor man, you know what he's getting at? He's getting at the dignity of human beings. It's the it factor. Okay. Some people, you know, they, they say that individuals who do well in acting and movies, you got to have this it factor. Well, you really have to be a good actor, but uh, right? But there's this it factor, right? Some people say uh, that I actually look like Vin Diesel. Would you say that? No, not at all. He's, he shook his head really quickly. That was That is humbling, humbling. Well, you know, the kids across the street from our house is a school. And the reason why I say this is because I heard it from my daughter who's going to the same school. And she goes, you know, dad, the kids out there said, you look like Vin Diesel. But then one of the other kids said, nah, because I was watering my plants. He says, Vin Diesel didn't take care of flowers. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, you know, there you go. Uh, But the it factor, we look at the guy, whoo, this is cool. You know, you you can watch a movie for two hours. All you need to do is look at their beautiful face and you're fine. Isn't that weird? Because they have this it factor to it. OK, there's a charisma. Well, guess what? You have it factor. Every single human being on the planet has it factor. You know why? Because you are made in God's image. There is this solid rock, objective, irreducible glory and significance about you and every human being that's ever been created. And that's cru- crucial because in our times that we live, we live in this current contradiction. This is what G.K. Chesterton said way back when, all right? As a politician, a secular person will cry out that all war is a waste of life. Then as a philosopher admit that all life is a waste of time. He goes on. A secular person goes first to a political meeting where he complains that the natives are being treated as if they were beasts. Then he goes to a scientific meeting where he proves that all human beings actually are beasts. That's the way, that's the the contradictions that we live in today are just mind boggling. Christianity can say to people simply, God does not make junk you are valuable to God you are valuable period and here he's saying the poor have it this the way we treat people with dignity and honor and sacredness and respect and individuality and graciousness and gentleness that's because they reflect the image of God they're fallen we're fallen, but there's no gradations to the image of God. It's there. Now, sorry for getting pretty philosophical this morning, but this is, this is an important one. And let me, you guys, I think, can probably handle it because this whole idea, you know, you start thinking about what we allow, abortion, uh, all the, these different laws, and we talk about how what our culture bases it on. And basically, this comes from uh, Tim Keller. He says, basically what happens when you lose God in our culture, our worth and dignity also becomes a big question mark. And here I quote, he says, the reason why we have and require rights as human beings is because, and this is what our culture says, we have a capacity to reason. You and I can make moral choices. We know what's right, we know what's wrong, or our culture tells us what's right and what's wrong. We have preferences. And because we are moral agents, we are worthy of rights given by the government. You have capacity, you have capacity. It may not be the same kind of capacity. It may not even be the same kind of IQ or whatever, talents or gift, but you have a capacity. And so therefore, you have rights. There's a huge problem with basing our value
1: on capacity.
0: He goes on and he quotes an atheist philosopher. Let me go on. He says, since human rights are based on capacities, and that is why I believe the Supreme Court was right with abortion. We, you know, we're, I'm not saying I agree with that, but that's what he's saying. He says the Supreme Court said that abortion was okay because they said that life in the womb doesn't have capacities. They can't make choices. They can't choose right from wrong. They can't live apart from the mother. They don't have capacities and therefore they don't have rights. But is the same guy. He says, but if that's true, let's keep something in mind. Born infants don't have those capacities either. Neither can senile old people like my father. Neither do mentally handicapped people." Do you see what he's saying? If you base things on capacity, then you begin to realize that there are a lot of people who are not in the womb who don't have capacity.
1: We have a problem. Well,
0: that's why we have a problem, because it's not based on what the scripture tells us. See, the bottom line is, if people don't have the image of God infused in them and value is based on capacity, then whoever doesn't have capacity doesn't have value. Dangerous. James knew it. That's why he said you do not honor or you dishonor the poor. Now he goes on in this passage and talks about, and he unpacks a lot of other stuff. Look at verse eight. He says, "If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself." He gives a scriptural, a law reason for not, uh, uh, for uh, for not. I'm sorry for treating uh, the poor equal. If the whole law, these were Jews who were believers in Christ, in the Jerusalem church, coming together and saying, look, Moses said, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as
1: yourself. That's equality.
0: What time do I need to stop? I know I'm already probably going over
1: no,
0: you give All right, uh, All right, I'll, I, won't, I, won't, I won't take it too long. I, yeah, because uh, we, can go, we can go into the – I was going to take a, a detour, but I won't. But if you go through the Old Testament and look at all the commands and the reasons why people were supposed to take care of the poor, it's, it's amazing. Because sometimes we have this idea where, you know, we don't have the time or money for this. We have to just preach the gospel. And I, I understand that. We do have to preach the gospel. Okay, but in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you find the poor get a priority in taking care of. You know, sometimes we think in our mindset that most poor people are just unwilling to work, but that's not true. The scripture talks about that. There are people who are oppressed. They are oppressed because certain laws, they're oppressed because certain mindsets that they can't move themselves out of it. The Bible is so clear. He says sometimes it's oppression. I won't take the time, but if you want these notes, you can have them. Sometimes that's why I didn't have high interest loans. Okay. Don't have a high interest on loans to the poor. Okay. And allow the poor to pay pay in a way that's okay for them. This is old testament. Sometimes people get poor because of natural calamity. They can't lift themselves out of it. It's not because they're lazy. And then the Bible does say, sometimes people are poor because they're lazy. So, you know, it's it's amazing how when you look at the Old Testament, you look at the scripture, you see that it's, it's many faceted in the way it looks at the problem of poverty. And even Jesus, when Jesus came and did all of these miracles, right? And we know primarily the miracles were to attest that he was the Messiah. But it was also to show that this is what God wants. In other words, this was eternity breaking into the natural fallen realm. And so miracles show the fact of how God wants to restore order. And then the New Testament ministry of mercy, giving food to widows, the Antioch church giving money for famine relief. Paul bringing money to the poor in Jerusalem from Macedonia and Achaia churches. James says, visit the orphans and widows in distress. And Jesus at the judgment says, for I was hungry, thirsty, a stranger, naked and in prison. And you gave me something to drink. You dishonor the poor. Dishonor the poor. Sober ones. Okay, let me get to the last point and I'll be done because James gets to the last point And it's amazing how he moves this. Chapter five talks about deserved judgment. Chapter two talks about a simple sin that when we get underneath it, we see really deep problems that we have. And now he talks about something else that it brings us full circle. He says, Do not commit adultery. I'm um, looking at verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's telling those who are showing partiality you have to show mercy you have to have a heart of mercy because ultimately mercy is the heart of God. Now, this is, uh, this is, again, is also something that we need to think through. And of course, C.S. Lewis thinks it through very, very well. And I'll, I'll end this here. This is from C.S. Lewis in his book, God and the Dot. He's, and I'll change a couple of things to bring it a little bit more up to date, but it's essentially the quote. He says, the essential act of mercy was to pardon. You see, we, we in this, in our uh, more secular mindset is we just have to have mercy. Just have mercy. Throw money at the problem. Just have mercy.
1: Okay. He says the essential
0: act of mercy was to pardon. And pardon, in its very essence, involves the recognition of guilt. If crime is only a disease which needs cure, not sin, which deserves punishment,
1: it cannot be pardoned.
0: You know, very often I talk and I preach about the problem of sin as us being sick, I think of myself as being broken, I think of myself as being, uh, you know, I cannot fix, I I think about it in psychology right where my mind doesn't work with my Will doesn't work with my emotions, sometimes I feel things good about things I shouldn't feel you you know what it is Then my body doesn't do what I want to do and I end up like Paul chapter seven where he says, who will save me from the body of this death? We are all over the place, okay? No, that's good. But there's a piece that I often leave out, and that is that all this brokenness is also, many times, resulting in disobedience that needs forgiveness, not just cure. And he goes on, he says, how can you, how can you forgive someone He uses an old-fashioned term. How can you forgive someone who has a rash? How can you forgive someone who has something, you know, an arm that doesn't work? That doesn't take forgiveness. That takes cure. Forgiveness takes mercy. Mercy. Then he says, mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful that is the important paradox as there are plants which will flourish only in mountain soil so it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice that's why james can say weep and howl for your judgment is coming I I say this in a non-passionate way because this message, these kinds of messages are so, so unpopular. But judgment is coming, justice is universal and it doesn't contradict the incredible, awesome love of God Who gave himself because, right, who took every injustice, who took every pain, who took every governmental sin, systemic sin, personal sin, evil thoughts, evil deeds, uh, things that were relationally broken. Who took all of that upon himself? Jesus did, and he rose victoriously from the dead so that we could, what, be free, be saved in the middle of the desert, be saved in the middle of the Pacific Ocean where we are not only helpless, but we deserve to be there. Jesus and his love and his grace. These passages warn the unbeliever
1: Judgment will come. I wish I could say a different message. But we
0: need justice. We need judgment. And then those of us who are believers who have kind of been lulled, lulled into this malaise of just flabby thinking.
1: He woos us by his love.
0: Let's pray. Mm -hmm. Father, thank you for these words that, uh, as I preach them, it feels very uncomfortable, but it is true. It's your word. And it is true. And it helps us. It helps us to realize that Jesus took the judgment as we celebrated this morning and that we can rest in him for eternity. We praise Your name.
1: but it still causes us, it causes us, when we think of judgment, we want to hide in you more. Your mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank yeah.